Matthew chapter 5. I was at McDonald's for one of my rare visits this week. <laughs> digesting, digesting my wonderful breakfast, reading the paper. Come to that most sacred of moments when I come to the comics. <clears throat> and uh, one of them made me laugh. That's what they're supposed to do, right? And I laughed out loud, and uh, some of you know that uh, I'm not known for my quietness, so I, I had this eruption of laughter. It just kind of came out of me. You know, when you, when you really hear something funny, it just kind of happens, you know? And, and about that same time, a woman came into the playland and began putting her stuff down just right at the same time that I laughed, and she said, would you be quiet, please? And my first thought was, no, I won't. And in fact, I'm going to go out and hire some kids to come in here and scream. <laughs> but I said, uh, kept my sanctification. I said, uh, well, I, just reading the funnies, and one of them was funny, you know. And reading the comics, one of them was funny. Would you be quiet, please? My husband's going to come in here and do some work, and he needs it to be quiet. So in the words of Archie Bunker, I stifled myself <laughs> real hard. <laughs> I wanted to say, you can't tell me what to do. I'm in the playland at McDonald's. This is built for screaming, you know. In Christianity, there's frequently somebody trying to tell you what to do. And often they're trying to tell you what to do because they've been reading the Old Testament and they've come up with something that you have got to do to be a Christian. As we work our way through this, uh, through this Sermon on the Mount, through Jesus' first really big address to his followers, he's going to talk about how Christianity, and, and specifically himself, relates to the law. And it's important for us to understand. So please follow as I read from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. We're just going to look at the first two verses this week and understand Basically this, Christ fulfilled the law, and I want to ask the question, how did he fulfill the law? And I want to look at two parts of that. First of all is this, Christ fulfilled the purpose of the law. One of the questions we have to answer and have readily in our minds as Christians is, what was the purpose of the law? Many people seem to think that the folks in the Old Testament did a bunch of things and earned God's favor and thereby gained salvation. And now we don't have to do that because Christ died for us. And that is not right. 
But if that is not right, then what is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Well, the purpose of the Old Testament law was for God's people to enjoy his presence, to have fellowship with him. And we're going to look at that giving of the covenant that God made with Israel, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. Now therefore, this is God speaking, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is God talking to Moses, saying, Now Moses, take this back and tell this to to the people. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now that's a covenant. A covenant is when one person says, this is what I will do if you do something. And he said, I will be your God, you will be my special people if you will follow my ways. And they said, we will. It's sort of like a wedding. Will you? Will you? We will. And they made this agreement with God. Now the agreement was not, we're going to do a bunch of things and earn salvation. The, the, The salvation, if you will, was wrapped up in faith. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And the call to faith came in Egypt. God said to his people, I am going to come through Egypt and I am going to put to death the firstborn of man and beast as a punishment on Egypt and to get them to let you go. Now, if you want to escape that punishment, you, you kill a lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door, and you be inside your home under the blood and eat that sacrifice in a certain way and I'm going to pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn of man and beast and if you are under the blood, I will pass over you. That's where those concepts come from. And that was not just for Israel, but we can already begin to look forward and say, wow, that really is a picture of Christ He shed his blood, and when I believe in him, I am under his blood, and God's judgment passes over me. The call to faith was in Egypt, and that that day of judgment was their day of faith. And as they came out of Egypt, and they came out to Mount Sinai, they came to this time when God is talking to them. And and so God made a covenant with them, And in the covenant, the first and foremost command was for his people to love him. His first and foremost covenant was not, do a bunch of stuff for me. His covenant was, love me. And that is recorded for us here in uh, Deuteronomy. Somehow I have missed Deuteronomy. I left it off. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar a little bit? Who repeated that? Jesus repeated that. The very first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. 
So his first command was for them to love him. And then he goes on to, to give them other commands. Forgive me, but I've left a passage, another passage out, which is Deuteronomy 6, verses 17 through 13. And he says, you shall diligently keep the commands. In verse 18, that it may be well with you. Verse 25, it will be righteousness for you. Chapter 7, verse 12, that the Lord your God will keep the covenant and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. If these people believed God, they would have fellowship with God through the obedience of the law. So the purpose of the law was to facilitate fellowship with God, but it had a limitation. It had a limitation. And that limitation is recorded for us here in Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow, or you might even think of it as a picture. The word shadow is used a number of times in the Old Testament. And you may, I don't know if you can see my shadow on the floor there, but there's an outline of me. You could call it a shadow. You could call it a picture or a silhouette. God said, The law was that silhouette. It wasn't the real thing. It was the picture of that real thing. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and it it was not the very thing, it can never, with these sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? He said, if those people came and offered a sacrifice and it made them righteous, it made them perfectly righteous, they would have stopped offering the sacrifice. For would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So God desired for his people to have fellowship with him, and yet the very system that he created was not capable of doing that completely. And so we ask the question, if the sacrifices of the law didn't remove sin, what did they do? Well, what they did was this. They were symbolic for that present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience or the inner man, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and physical ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things that come with the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, That is not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, and then he goes on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The Old Testament sacrifices, when given in genuine repentance for sin were grounds for God to put sin on hold, as the scripture said, until the time of reformation. What's the time of reformation? Well, here, 
God set forth Jesus as a propitiation or a satisfaction by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. So Christ came as a perfect sacrifice, but the Old Testament sacrifices never did make people perfect. But the the sacrifice of Christ did make people perfect. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10, and let's look at the results of that sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 7. We read part of this already, but we're going to we're going to go over, go over it again and just look at it and say, what did Christ accomplish? Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book, that's the Old Testament, it is written of me to do your will. Previously saying, verse 8, sacrifice and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Now, understand, he's trying to give us a balance here. He's saying, yes, you ask for them in the law, but ultimately that is not what really pleased you. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away that first covenant that he may establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. What is the result of the sacrifice of Christ? First of all, we are sanctified. That is, removed from the domain of sin and placed under God's authority. The word sanctified is is a word that means something like uh, set apart for a special use. God tells us that before we know Christ as Savior, we are under Satan's control. When we believe in Christ, we are set apart. We are made special for God. And that happens completely by the sacrifice of Christ. Let's follow it along a little bit further. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly, verse 11, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't take away sins. But this man, verse 12, after he offered one sacrifices for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We have been perfected in righteousness. Now, we're not today primarily talking about our life, and how we move through Christianity, we all know that none of us are sinlessly perfect. Some of you come real close. You know, Kathy Glay is awfully sweet. But not sinlessly perfect. I hate to burst your bubble. So yes, we have some sin to work on in our life, but in terms of our position before God, when we believe in Christ, we are made sinlessly perfect. That's why at any moment, if we were to drop dead, we're ready to go to heaven. It's not because we've done all of our duty that day and we've earned God's favor, so he goes, okay, I guess you're ready. I guess you're clean enough. He's already made us clean enough. By one sacrifice, 
He has perfected forever, forever those who are being sanctified. Even within that verse, he alludes to the fact that there is a process going on whereby we are being made more righteous in our daily living. Let's follow it on a little farther. Verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he had said before, This is the covenant I will make with them. He's quoting from the Old Testament now, from uh, Jeremiah 31 and from uh, Ezekiel. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. We have a new spiritual heart and mind. When that Old Testament believer went and offered his sacrifice, God received it, and he put his sins on hold until Christ died on the cross. But that believer was left without a changed heart and mind because God was not yet able to forgive or take away sin until Christ came. God graciously allowed their sins to be, to be held back and the judgment was held back from them because they were acting in good faith in Him. But we, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we have a new heart and mind. We can understand God's Word. We can think like Him as we grow in Him. We can have a heart for Him. We can worship together as we did this morning. We have a heart for God. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but verse 17 their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. We have the forgiveness of sins, that, the forgiveness from God that is a removal. Now, we've got to ask the question, does God forget your sin? Can God, can God forget your sin? No. But you know what he does? He stops holding it against you. He takes it off of you. He takes that sin from you and he puts it, how far away from you does the Old Testament say? Far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west, which is a continuous, unmeasurable kind of placement. We have forgiveness from God, the removal of our sins. And let's follow it, on, follow it along a little bit farther, verse 18. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. If, if we were to take back this uh, sacrifice of Christ. But therefore, verse 19, because we do have this sacrifice of Christ, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest or the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts and minds sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have complete fellowship with God. The Old Testament believer came to the outside of the place of worship, and if he was a man, he could come into the place where they offered the sacrifice, but that was as far as he could go. He couldn't go into the, the, the outer place of worship where the showbread and the candle, the lampstand and so on was there. And certainly not even a regular priest could go into the actual place that represented the presence of God. 
That was only for the high priest and only once a year. And yet here he is alluding to that holy of holies and saying we get to go right into the presence of God. Why? Because our sin has been forgiven, taken away. Even that high priest in the Old Testament had his sin on him. It was on hold. God was withholding judgment because of his faith and because of his willingness to, uh, to offer the sacrifices as God had requested. But it was on him until Christ died. But us... When we believe in Christ, immediately our sin is removed and we're ready to fellowship with God face to face. So that brings us back to, to, the, to the beginning of, of, of this passage in Matthew 5 and asking this question then, what does it mean when Christ said he fulfilled the law? Let's look at this. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be sin, to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in sinful man. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. The purpose of the law was for God's people to enjoy fellowship with God and yet there was a roadblock, and that roadblock was sin. They couldn't come into the, to the place that represented his presence, nor could they come directly into his presence in prayer like we can now. They couldn't offer the sacrifice of praise like we can now. And the reason is because the law could not make them righteous. It took the sacrifice of Christ. And when he came, and when we believe in what he did, God makes it possible for us to have unbroken fellowship with him. And this is plain from the passage that, we, that was quoted from Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. A new heart and a new mind which the Old Testament system, the Old Covenant could not bring. Well, the natural question then would be, why did God even fool with the law? If, if it couldn't do the job, why didn't he just bring Christ right away? Well, that's a good question. And that question is answered in Galatians chapter 3. And Galatians chapter 3 tells us there was an ultimate purpose to the law. There was an initial purpose and an ultimate purpose. The initial purpose was to facilitate fellowship between God and his people. But the ultimate purpose is here. Then the law, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. If there had been a law which could have given life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. In the day of Christ and in today, there are still people trying to follow the Old Testament law because they believe it is a means to righteousness. And the Apostle Paul answered it first and foremost right here. If there was a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined 
all under sin. The law made people sinners. It said, you're, you're unworthy. So that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or school teacher or our ruler to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was to bring us to Christ. Everything that was commanded and orchestrated by God in the Old Testament time period was his plan to lead Israel by the hand to salvation in Christ. And so when Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, I have come to fulfill the law, what he is saying is, look, the law was put there for you to enjoy fellowship with God, but you never really could fully have that. But now, in me, I am going to offer the perfect sacrifice, and you are going to be able to come right into the presence of God, each and every one of you personally. And so we, we, we have some takeaways from this. One of the takeaways would be this. Do I need a priest today to facilitate my worship of God? No, I do not. Do I need to practice certain old covenant rules in order to experience the person and blessing of God? No. Christ has brought me face to face with God. And so Christ has fulfilled the purpose of the law, but he's also fulfilled the pictures in the law. This has to do with what we call the ceremonial law. In, in uh, Matthew 5, verse 18, he says, Until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away. The jot was a very small letter. The tittle was a piece of a letter, um, sort of like a dot on an I or, or a little swoop on a Hebrew letter. Just very small parts of the Hebrew alphabet. And he uses that as an extreme example to say, look, the Old Testament law is not going away, but... What he's going to tell us next week is it's also not there so we should follow it and obey it because I'm going to take you way beyond that. And he takes us beyond that, first of all, in our salvation. The ceremonial law that Christ fulfilled governed Israel's form of worship. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, if you would. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 11. And we want to think about the Old Testament law and then the work of Christ, and that's what Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews does. But let's just take a, a piece of that right here in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. What we see here and we see throughout the book of Hebrews is Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Did God give people a high priest in the Old Testament because it was his design that for then and forevermore that everybody should always go to a priest if they wanted to talk to God? No. He gave them a high priest as a picture of the fact that accessing God's presence is a special privilege. 
And the privilege is not because that man was so great. The privilege is because we all have sin and we're not fit to come into the presence of God. Was that man in the Old Testament any more fit to enter God's presence than anybody else? No. He was only more fit because God said, if you do this and this and this and this, then I'll let him come in and offer the sacrifice. And God restricted it, if, if you would think of it even as a pyramid, here's the high priest, here's all the other priests, here's the Levites who supported the priesthood, here's all the people. He said, I'm going to let that one man come in once a year. And, and the message was loud and clear, you're not worthy. Now we don't like that in America, we don't like anybody to tell us we're not fit to do something. And yet that was the message. Was that message to continue on? Are we supposed to be living under a message today? Are we supposed to have somebody at the top of the stack who is the ultimate guy who passes down rules through everybody else to us? No. What he wanted was for the Jewish people to see Jesus and go, this man is the ultimate high priest. Not only was he the ultimate high priest, he's the real tabernacle or temple or place of worship. Verse 11, he, he came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater, more perfect tabernacle. He came with a place of worship not made with hands. What's that talking about? It's talking about the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he's not only the priest, he's the place of worship. God had the tabernacle and then the temple and there were all kinds of rules about how it was to be made and what was to be in it and how it was to be laid out. Was God trying to tell us that we should call our church the Baptist Temple of Ferndale and that we should, we should revere the space and we should have sacred furniture and, 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 and all of this kind of thing and, and put up only certain kinds of pictures and this and that. Is he saying that's what the space is about? No. What he was saying is, worshiping me, access to me is something special and unique. And so here Christ came. You can't get more special than made without hands and sinlessly perfect. And so he was the priest and he was the place of worship. And we go on to the next part of this passage, verse, verse 12. And he came, that priest, into that tabernacle, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, his sinlessly perfect blood. Jesus is the effective sacrifice. We could call him the ultimate sacrifice. We could call him the final sacrifice. I've chosen the word effective this time because all of the rest of the sacrifices were not effective for the removing of sin. Only his was effective. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, if it's sanctified for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall that cleanse your conscience or your inner man from dead works so that you can serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator, the one who brings the two parties together in the new covenant. 
Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant is that agreement whereby we get born again. New heart, new mind. He is the mediator of the new covenant, verse 15. By the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the old covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. And then on to verse, drop down to verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. There's a sense in which we're told that the real place of worship is the very presence of God. And he says those things in the temple, those were copies of the real things. Jesus entered into heaven. Remember when he died? rose again and Mary found him at the tomb and she's hanging on his feet and he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended. Uh, Most Bible scholars would agree that Jesus needed to ascend to heaven in completing of the sacrificial work of offering it in the presence of God and then he came back to earth for those 50 days or so that he was here until the day of Pentecost. Jesus entered the real holy place And then verse 28, Jesus offered the final sacrifice. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. These are just a few of the snapshots that we get in Hebrews that say, you know that Old Testament worship system? I never intended for that to continue. I intended for that to be a photo album that you would look at, and when Christ came along, you would go, oh, this is the real guy. And that's what this verse means. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. A lot of people have quoted this verse apparently, and and tried to conceive of it as meaning there's no rules for Christians. Anytime somebody says, well, you really shouldn't do that, then the the, the go-back is, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. As though somehow the removal of the Old Testament law means that my life is wide open choice to do anything I want. And that's not what God intended. What God intended to say was, you know, all that stuff in the Old Testament, all of those rituals, all of those specific things, that was all to point you to faith in Christ. Now, as we go forward next week, we're going to see that absolutely God has some things for us to obey. In fact, his standard of obedience is higher now than it was in the Old Testament. But he does not intend for us to keep the ceremonial law of the Old Testament He doesn't intend for me to come here in a robe and for me to quote that verse that says, touch not the Lord's anointed. As my forebears used to quote, which is translated, don't criticize the preacher. Because if you do, you're in danger of God's judgment. No, you're just in danger of some other things. Am I supposed to follow some of those things that, that God laid out for the people of Israel? In terms, Should I go back and, 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 and look at the magnificence of the temple and say, God deserves the very best. We're worshiping him. We should have gold-covered things here. No. God was trying to teach them how special he is and, and how unique and, 
and, and how much they needed Christ to take their sin away. That was the problem. And so as, as we think about the change from the old to new, we might rightly ask the question, well, do we still worship? Absolutely. Our worship begins first and foremost with the dedication of our whole life. From these familiar verses, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul is going right back to that Old Testament imagery and saying, you know, you know how they used to bring an animal and they would, they would give the animal to the priest and then he would kill the animal and the blood would be sprinkled and there'd be a, a, a temporary hold on their sins. You know how they used to do that? He said, I want you to bring yourself and put yourself on the, sac- on the altar of God and give yourself to God a living sacrifice. In other words, you're still active and busy for God, but you're at God's disposal. You want to worship God? Don't wear a robe. Don't follow the patterns of the Old Testament. Go beyond. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, give your whole life to God. That is the beginning point of real worship. And it manifests itself in righteousness. Do not be conformed. Don't act like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped? Don't go back and try to follow that stuff. Give your life to him. Our worship also revolves around personal praise. Hebrews 13 Therefore, by him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. One of our younger believers in Tukwila came to me one time. They'd gone to another church with their family somewhere, and it was a church that tried to follow a lot of Old Testament ideas. They they believed in Christ, but they, they tried to follow a lot of Old Testament ideas, And one of them, they believed uh, that was really important for worship was dancing. And they did the Jewish folk dancing as part of their worship. And this fine brother said, we really need to do some some of that dancing in worship, you know. Not going to happen, brother. (laughs) Maybe the fellowship hall, we'll do some dancing. But The serious point is this, does that worship get you closer to God? No, no it doesn't. The form of the things in the Old Testament didn't bring them closer to God. It was God's teaching tool. And and God's teaching tool was to say, look, we need to be praising God. It needs to be a consistent and continual thing. It needs to happen here in church and it needs to happen when we go out of here. It needs to happen when somebody tells you to be quiet in the playland. (laughs) It's really hard to worship (laughs) then. Our worship is demonstrated in a life of good works as well. Hebrews 13, 16 continues. He says, first of all, praise, and then he says, behavior. Don't forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. I don't know if you've ever conceived of this, but when you think of the Old Testament worship system, it's, it's, it's big, it's intricate, it's magnificent, it's, it's, it's so many things. But when you 
go out and help somebody in the name of Christ, your act of worship is at least as great, if not greater, than what went on there. Because you are a forgiven, cleansed priest with full access to God. And when you do things uh, in the name of Christ, God is honored. Do we worship? Absolutely. But not by keeping specific laws. Must we worship on the Sabbath? No. And there's so many reasons for that. Not the least of which is the Sabbath wasn't a worship day. You want to you keep the Sabbath? Then don't work one day a week. That's a bigger challenge for Americans than coming to church. Must you eat a kosher diet to walk with God? So-called kosher diet? Must you wear certain items of clothing? Must you observe certain festivals? No. No. Salvation through Christ doesn't mean that we have no obligation to God for righteous living, but it does mean we don't have an obligation for those things because that was never God's intent. I went to the grocery store this week to get some things for dinner one day, and, and as I'm walking in the produce section, I, I spotted a guy with, a, with an arm thing like when you have shoulder surgery. And I noticed this when I had one, that other people would come up and say, hey, yeah, what, what kind of shoulder surgery did you have? It was kind of the brotherhood of shoulder surgery or something. And I, and I just thought, that's kind of weird, you know. But, but uh, So I'm walking through the produce section, and I see a guy with one of these big things on like I had, and I go, hey, been there, done that. And then I look at him, and I think, well, he looks an awful lot like Jake Locker. And I looked down a little bit further, and I said, by golly, it is Jake Locker. Buy produce right there in the Hagen. So I did what any good fan would do. I walked over and I said, hey, my name's Dave Lusser. I'm glad to meet you. I said, I've enjoyed following your career. And he shook my hand and kept his hat down low. Kept on his mission. It's a privilege to say I've met him for a number of reasons, not just because he's a football field, a football player. But that is nothing. That is nothing compared to the privilege we have because Christ fulfilled the law. And that privilege is summarized right here. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Christian, we're the sons of God. God never intended for us to go back and do some of those things because we have more than they had to begin with. I hope you are enjoying the presence of God fully as God intends for you to do. If you're here today and and you say, "I, I don't enjoy the presence of God. I can't look up to heaven and go, Abba or Daddy. I don't have that relationship with God. We would love to have you help you have it today. If you're enjoying the presence of God, 
Would you tell him thank you as we go to prayer and then to worship? Heavenly Father, may you be honored by our worship right now as we sing to you and as we leave here and live for you and as we walk in your freedom and your fellowship day by day. Father, I pray that if there is somebody who doesn't know that freedom and that fellowship, that they would come and talk to us and come in to being one of your children today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.